listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Since August 2016, Kaylin Falk has been serving a, a term position along with Rachel Twig Boyce as a lay pastoral associate. Well, that term comes to an end at the end of this month, and so I thought it'd be good to have her preach one more time. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This image of tasting the goodness of God made me wonder what it would be like to think of the whole Bible in culinary terms. So obviously you'd have your comfort food, chicken soup for the soul, as you will. Um, So those well-worn, familiar texts that you turn to whenever you need solace or encouragement. There'd be those passages that are kind of like vegetables. They take a lot of work to deal with sometimes, but they're really nourishing once you take the time to to take them in. Now, a lot of the Old Testament would be roughage. Uh, Not the most interesting passages, (laughs) but they keep us regular and they're part of a complete diet. (laughs) So it's all good. And then there's a few passages that are like the containers at the back of your fridge They kind of look sketchy, and you have to give them the sniff test to see if they still have anything to offer. Um, There's a few of those passages coming in 1 Peter in a couple of months, or in a couple of weeks. So if this passage was food, it would be breast milk, just as it said at the beginning of this passage. This is a text for newborn infants, brand new members to God's own family. Before we move to the meat and potatoes, before we even get to strained peas, we start here. This passage is a call to the very foundations of faith, of our primary nourishment. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. We belong to God. Now, one of the first tasks of infant development is establishing a strong attachment. It is important that the infant feels safe and knows that they belong. And then as we grow, we learn to tell our own stories based on the way we've been written into our family story. So you are mom's favorite. You were the troublemaker. You are a good girl. These statements affect how we see ourselves and how we fit into community. Now, in my work as a spiritual director, I have the privilege of hearing many people's stories. I had one directee who had been labeled the difficult child. Her whole family perceived her as willful, obstinate, and fussy. Now, as an adult, she learned that she had some fairly significant food allergies. And so when she learned more about how to nourish herself and she came to full health, she came to see that she had not been difficult. She had been sick. This brought about a time of healing and restoration for her in terms of her own story. And it also allowed her family to start perceiving her in a new light to take on a new role in the family system. She was not obstinate. She was doing her very best. Now, this passage in 1 Peter is also one of reclamation. In it, a small faith community facing persecution who had been told that they were untouchable, unworthy, and of little value is being given a new identity. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And this new identity is through the lens of Jesus himself, rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. Now, Jesus came as a stumbling block. We wanted him to be a mascot, a lucky penny, 
a champion who would make life easier for us and would ensure that our enemies would quite literally go to hell. We still want this from him many times. But what we got in Jesus is someone who turned the world upside down and offered us a challenge instead. Jesus came to the women. He ate with the tax collectors. He befriended the disfigured and the disabled. And he had many conversations with non-academics. He messed around with all of our preconceptions of privilege and our understanding of who has value, who is worth taking time for. He challenged our fixation on law and on rule-keeping. And he made us wrestle with God instead of giving us easy answers all the time with the parables instead of just a simple yes or no. He continues to invite us to participation in a relationship with God when all we often want is security. And he is chosen and precious in God's sight, the head cornerstone. Now, this year at St. Benedict's Table for Lent, we used an empty chair as an icon. We wanted it to act as a reminder to look for the people and the parts of us that are rejected and overlooked the things that make us uncomfortable or unwilling to offer welcome. We wanted to be like Jesus and make space for the ones who have been told that there is no room at the table for, for them. Now, we looked at this at a couple of levels. From a global perspective, we thought of landless people, refugees, and those who have lost their security because of environmental damage. We think of African-American teenage boys in hoodies, indigenous women in Canada, people who are transgender, especially trans women of color, people with intellectual and physical disabilities. These are the people who are chosen and precious in God's sight. But from a closer perspective, we think of the people that we choose to ignore or treat as though they are invisible, the ones we have deemed immoral, unwelcome, or unworthy. These are the people who have been called to the table. They are chosen and invited by God. And even closer in, when we think of the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of and that we wish that we could ignore, the parts that we despise or we're just simply afraid of, instead of hiding them, God invites those parts to come close. Those are the parts that are most in need of mercy. Now, in spiritual direction, I had one directee who was a pastor, and he was struggling with a faith crisis. That's very hard when your job depends on your faith. <laughs> and he said, I'm working on that on my own. Um, I just want to bring my best self to God. So he just wanted to leave that in the corner. And I was like, mm, I think that God is most interested in the part of you that has no faith. And he would love to have that part sit really close and just receive. God is big enough to hold the parts of us that make us uncomfortable. Your disbelief does not threaten God. And in fact, this is most of the work that I do in spiritual direction. Most people come wanting to fix a part of themselves. They want to amputate the part that causes discomfort. An alcoholic who has tried her very hardest to medicate the part of herself that carries pain. A counselor who wants to be strong for others, but has contempt for the part of herself who is vulnerable and feels pathetic. A young man who is terrified of his sexuality and is trying his very best to lock that part up in a closet and keep it under wraps. An anxious mom who is disgusted at the part of herself that is lazy and selfish. Life would be so much easier 
if we didn't have those parts that made us feel vulnerable. But when we deny those parts of ourselves, we lose the invitation that God is offering. We don't need to be fixed. We need to be transformed. We need to know that Jesus will come to us in our darkness, our shame, our loneliness, and offer grace. That Jesus would meet us exactly there, where we want to cover up and earn God's love. We're called to reach out and let ourselves be seen and loved for who we actually are, not for who we wish we are. Instead of relying on self-sufficiency, we must learn to receive mercy. This is the feast that is offered to us. Sometimes it feels like a bitter pill. Now, this can all sound very sentimental and ephemeris, but mothering a child with profound autism has forced me to learn this firsthand. The truth is, I did not want to be a mom of a disabled person. I wanted to sit at the cool mom table, and I wanted to have everything look like the Pinterest board of my other friends who are easy and breezy. Uh, living with someone with autism can be beautiful. I wouldn't change it for the world. But it can also be really frustrating and difficult and super tedious. But through this, I've come to appreciate Jesus in a new way. It has been precious to me that God knows the beauty of living in the margins, that I am seen and loved even when I feel inadequate and overwhelmed. Parenting Noah has made me realize that God's love for me is not dependent on how well I speak, nor is it dependent on my IQ. It's just freely offered because God chooses to love me and call me family. Now, when I was younger, I thought maybe I'd be able to offer some of my strengths to the world, to, to make the world a better place. But I see now that all I can really offer is this. You are seen. You are loved. And God is big enough to hold all of you, not just the nice bits. And I can say this because I have felt seen and welcomed by God, even though God fully understands my limitations. Now, this has sometimes been a stumbling block for people, especially from a conservative Christian culture that prefers if I focused a little bit more on who is in and who is out. But it is precious to me. Now, John is a continuation of this theme. Once we know our identity as God's people, through the lens of Jesus, the head cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected, we are continually reminded to live out that identity through relationship with God. And we hear Jesus' words, don't be troubled. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. Words of comfort and of welcome. God has the capacity to meet all of us. All that's required of us is to believe. And Jesus continues on to reassure the disciples, I'll go and prepare a place. I will come again. I will take you with me. All words of relationship, of ongoing interaction, where all that's required of us is to trust Stay open to keep listening. Now, this is the equivalent of how we teach children object permanence. This is the knowledge that something can exist even if we can't always see it. Without object permanence, it's hard for us to have any understanding of the world other than our current point of view. So we play peekaboo with kids to have them learn to watch for us, to know that we're still there even if they can't see us. It also teaches them impulse control, which is foundational for both patience and faith. So Jesus, explaining this dynamic of leaving and returning, is like a gentle game of peekaboo. I'm going to go, but I will come back. That doesn't mean that I have abandoned you. 
This is key to the faith formation of the disciples and also a preparation for the idea of the Holy Spirit. So when poor Thomas tries to figure this out, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We get the sentence that has been used as a call of judgment against other faiths for centuries. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this verse has been used, in the words of the New Interpreter's Bible Commentary, as a weapon with which to bludgeon one's opponents into theological submission. But that is an interpretation that comes from the context of Christianity as empire. This is not the original intention. Jesus was speaking to a small tribe, a faith community of people who had been overlooked, rejected, and despised, but who had had an experience of tasting that the Lord was indeed good. They were worried about how to posture themselves for the future. They wanted to know if there was a guidebook, a set of rules to follow, some way to ensure that they would be able to stay at this table that they had been invited to. When Thomas says, we don't know the way, Jesus reassures him, I am the way. You don't need to know exactly what's going to happen. You don't have to worry. I abide in God, and you abide in me. Don't look for security. Just stay in relationship, and all shall be well. And we are sometimes so scared of being dependent on God that we'd prefer to rely on a formula instead. If I do this, or if I say this, or if I give up these things, I will be safe. The truth is, we don't know where Jesus is going or where he will take us, and this can feel scary. All we want is for Jesus to show us the way so we can get on it. But there are no shortcuts, no ways of getting to God without relationship. Jesus reminds us that being invited to the table does not depend on dogma, proper theology, rule-keeping, or privilege. It's only through abiding in Christ that the way will open. Now, right now, our family is going through several transitions at the same time. Altogether, it seems daunting and more than we can bear. There are many times where I'd prefer a roadmap for how to navigate these next steps instead of relying on faith. I want to know that God will be revealed in a way that satisfies me and puts my anxiety to rest. But Jesus has been gently calling me back to relationship, to trust. Where I ask for security, all I get is a promise. There is an open chair for me. I am not overlooked as I figure things out. God will be revealed as we go. And as I abide in Christ, the way, the truth, and the life will be revealed. This is the feast that we have been offered. And you are all welcome to pull up a chair. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.